Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. I recorded today's episode on St. Patrick's Day, and so this week we're going to have more of an Irish flavor than usual. In a world that only seems to get worse, America can take heart in the fact it was so influential in bringing peace to Northern Ireland, an area that had been in paramilitary conflict for decades. But now with the UK's Brexit vote, that peace could be under threat, with the prospect of a land border largely erased as part of the Good Friday peace agreement being reintroduced, dividing communities and threatening an already shaky economy. So this week, we'll hear from Naomi O'Leary, a journalist who's been following this issue as well as Holland's recent elections, so we'll get to hear a bit of both today. Naomi made news herself just yesterday when a tweet she made went viral, pointing out the grave diplomatic blunder perpetrated by House Speaker Paul Ryan while toasting Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny on Capitol Hill. I was going to maybe begin by asking uh, how it feels to be to be Twitter famous now that you're... Uh... <laughs> Are you talking about Pintgate? Pintgate, exactly, Pintgate. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was really bizarre, actually. So I just, like offhandedly posted this tweet in the middle of covering something completely else. I was caught up in Dutch election coverage, but just like in a spare moment, I noticed how disgusting the uh, pint that Paul Ryan held up looked like. I mean, it looked like a pint that had been poured two days ago. It was grey um, almost. So, oh, it was grim. Like, it's the kind of thing you'd see and you'd just think like that that would turn your stomach like. And so uh, I posted a tweet just saying, you know, first of all, my, Mike Pence says top of the morning, which, of course, is something that no Irish people actually say. Um, <laughs> and then Paul Ryan, uh, you know, holds up this this horror of a pint. You know, these are grave missteps by the US. I, I, and it really resonated with people for some reason. I, I saw it and I, and I saw there was like there was almost like a you know typical internet investigation going on as to like how it could have been that it could have been such a bad point. There's people speculating there might have been a can. Uh, he might have dragged it from a bar and it must have been sitting there for a while. I mean, these things are important yeah. to Irish people. Or, you know, some people were quipping that Enda Kenny must have brought it over from Ireland with him in, uh, <laughs> in Dublin Airport. Um, yeah. yeah. This, the, uh, point, the point diplomacy is real. Because I, I remember when, <laughs> like, when Obama was over and there was a huge uproar that the, the keg that he'd had in, the, in uh, Money Gaul had actually been taken over from America because, you know, the Secret Service had to have tested it to make sure it wasn't poisonous. And so the pint that he pulled wasn't actually his own pint and all this stuff. Uh, oh, wow. So there's layers. There's a book. There's a book in here somewhere about pint diplomacy. But uh, more serious stuff, um, you know, it's St. Patrick's Day. And this the biggest you know, foreign policy issue for Ireland right now is, is Brexit and, and dealing with Brexit. And the, the physical manifestation of that is, is, is the border uh, with Northern Ireland, which would be the only land border that the UK would then have uh, with a, a European Union country. Um, and obviously, it's become a, a huge hot point in, in Ireland, in the UK, in, in the EU as well. So maybe could you explain to the audience who may not be so familiar with, with, uh, with the border uh, what it entails and, and, and how complex it really is? The course of the border is incredibly complex. So it's a few hundred kilometers long, but it's much longer um, if you actually follow it than if you were to go as the bird flies because it winds in and out. Uh, it's very jaggedly and follows the ends of fields and uh, rivers and streams and just winds along the landscape. It separates 26 counties that are, uh, make up the Republic of Ireland from the six counties um, that uh, are 
part of the UK called Northern Ireland. So this border has been a cause of strife since it emerged in the 1920s when Ireland uh, broke off from the UK. And even at times when, you know, at, at kind of the ma maximum tension during the period of violence that's known as the Troubles, when the British army were, you know, trying to patrol the border, even then it wasn't uh, really pleasable. It's just unworkable because of its complexity and because of the fact that this just isn't neat in human terms or in geographical terms. So you have people who work on one side and live on the other. You have houses with their front door in the Republic and their back door in Northern Ireland. And, you know, the communities are totally interconnected uh, and also economically interconnected. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people that live there don't even view it really as a border because it kind of doesn't exist psychologically. Because since the peace deal, the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, the border has become almost invisible. You can cross back and forth and you might not even notice it. The only thing you need to, to watch out for is the road signs that change from kilometers into miles when you're in the, the UK. I was reading your, your article in, in uh, The Atlantic uh, back in the summertime and you know you're describing these people you're speaking to that you know, they buy their milk in one country and they, they fill up their car uh, with petrol in another. Yeah exactly people you know are used to kind of having one foot on either side of it um, and the strange uh, thing about the entire Brexit debate in the UK is that the, the fact of this border was an invisible issue you know, the, the circumstances of Northern Ireland were hardly debated at all. I was covering it from London um, as a journalist, and it was really bizarre and striking to me that the issue of Northern Ireland and how Brexit would affect it was just hardly mentioned. And this is the region that is supposed to lose out the most and be most affected by Brexit because it's hugely economically interconnected with the Republic of Ireland. Um, and, you know, it's set to be hammered if things like customs barriers have to go up. Um, I mean, the whole thing is potentially has enormous impact for Northern Ireland. And the, and the strange thing is that the UK as a whole seemed to vote on, on, on Brexit without giving this any consideration. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely um, a parallel there in the US that I think that people seem to think the Northern Ireland is, is done. You know, it's fixed and, uh, you know, all that blood and treasure was spent. Um, but it's really not. It, it's still a tenuous situation. It's not like uh, peace just happens magically. It's something that kind of grows and grows. And one of the bigger parts of that was uh, the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, I, I was listening to um, uh, the Brexit minister yesterday, David Davis. He was He was speaking in front of a parliamentary committee and saying that, you know, there will be no border, no physical border, and there will be, you know, there's technology that can deal with that. But, I mean, he, he's obviously in charge of this for the UK, but does anyone really know what it's actually going to entail? Uh, no, they don't. And, um, you know, statements like that from David Davis are completely at odds with the apparent policy of the administration of Theresa May. Uh, so, you know, all, everything he's saying is merely an empty promise, because if you actually look at the details of what they're proposing, uh, they want to uh, withdraw from the single market, they want to withdraw from the customs union, and the inevitable consequences of that is that there needs to be customs checks between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland if it's leaving the EU. I mean, that just can't, you know, there's no way around that. Um, talk of e-checks and things like that, you know, it's 
I, 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 I'd love to see the detail on that because I, I've been given absolutely no indication on how that would not uh, have just a, a disruptive effect on people's lives. Uh, it's, it's magical thinking in a certain sense, and I think it relies upon an idea of Northern Ireland that doesn't correspond to reality. I, I was talking to an expert in unionism and loyalism. So those are the people who live in Northern Ireland who consider themselves you know, affiliated to Britain and support Northern Ireland being part of the UK. Um, her name is Sophie Long. She's an academic. And she was explaining to me that w- what people don't realize about Northern Ireland is the conditions that caused conflict for decades, a bloody conflict in which thousands of people died, for all intents and purposes, remain there. Still, people live completely segregated lives. Um, you know, Protestants are, are educated in Protestant schools, Catholics are educated in Catholic schools, and you might not meet someone from the other community until you're a grown adult. Um, and they also have uh, politics, which is divided along sectarian lines. And the uh, the paramilitary groups, so the, the kind of pro-British paramilitary groups, as well as the um, Irish-affiliated, or not Irish-affiliated, but the, the paramilitary groups that want Northern Ireland to be part of a united Ireland, both of those uh, those groups are still active, uh, still existent, and still recruiting. What's interesting to me is that, you know, if you listen to the, the rhetoric coming out of, of leadership on all sides, you have the, the EU, Ireland, the UK, all saying that they don't want a border, all saying that they don't want to return to, to, the, to the past, um, which, which is positive, but we just don't know whether it's going to actually take to make that a reality because all the, the laws and all this, this motion with Brexit seems to point in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, rhetoric like that just simply uh, doesn't square with the intentions of what the British government has said it wants to do. I think what's happening here is that Brexit is such a monstrously huge, complex issue for Westminster to deal with and for the EU that, you know, Northern Ireland is simply not a priority for them. I mean, it it was like that anyway at the best of times. You know, uh, there was an election recently in Northern Ireland that had enormous importance. And it was barely reported by the press in Britain. I mean, it was invisible. Uh, it's a psychological gap for people who live in Britain. They, you know, Northern Ireland is forgotten about. And, and I mean, it, it could even almost be to their detriment because there's now talk um, of almost, you know, a united Ireland by default. Uh, it might end up just being so much more of an attractive proposition and that Sinn Féin and others would be so emboldened uh, as to as to make that a possibility. For as long as I can remember in my own lifetime, the the idea of a united Ireland has been close to something like a political taboo. It was wasn't something that was really debated in mainstream politics because everybody's focus was on reaching a peace deal. It was something that only the uh, the Republican Party Sinn Féin was willing to talk about, and the mainstream parties in the Republic of Ireland, you know, they didn't really want to touch the issue. They didn't really want to talk about it, um, and that is been radically changed uh, since Brexit, not just because of the Brexit vote, but specifically because of what uh, the, the administration of Theresa May is, is interpreting the Brexit vote to mean. So they're discussing, you know, not just leaving the EU, but leaving the single market and leaving, leaving, the, leaving the customs union. And those are two things that mean a hard border uh, and, and uh, an EU external border being drawn across the island of Ireland. And you know, the implications of that is that essentially, you know, the, a united Ireland at some point in the future looks more like something politically realistic that has, um, you know, in certainly within my lifetime, I think. 
and um, it's you know you have Enda Kenny going to Brussels uh, and and arguing that uh, a provision for a future United Ireland needs to be actually written into whatever Brexit deal is agreed. Um, you know it's something that newspapers like the Irish Times, a kind of establishment newspaper in, in Ireland are now actually sort of writing about and people are discussing and talking about. It's a it's a huge shift. Um uh it's 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 interesting as well that it seems to be um uh again kind of ignored or not picked up on by London, which is very focused on its own affairs. Uh it does seem when you see this move uh towards kind of the normalization of talk of a United Ireland and also the, the the key election in Stormont, so the Northern Irish election that I mentioned, in which uh, unionists, so pro-British parties, lost their majority for the first time in history in Northern Ireland. This was this is a political unit that was created to preserve a unionist major, majority, and and for the first time they don't have one in the assembly there, and there was a rise in support for the uh, Republican Party Sinn Féin. I mean. Um, this combined with the uh, demands for a second referendum on Scottish independence coming from Scotland, um, because they don't want to leave the EU either, it almost seems as if you know the UK, if it were to all come crashing down, would fall apart by accident. It is. It is absolutely crazy to think that this is this is a year, almost a year later. We're still trying to figure out um, you know, what what the fallout is going to be. Um, can, can we just talk about uh, to move over to to Holland, which which you've also been yeah. been covering? Um, this was a really interesting test of of not just Holland, but I suppose populism's rise in general in the West. So um, the Dutch election was uh, seen internationally in the context of Brexit and the election of U.S. President Donald Trump. So it was linked in uh, you know kind of in the international media and in the minds of people around the world with those two prior events, which gave it a kind of a um, an understanding internationally that it didn't really have domestically. So unlike Brexit and Trump, um, the, the Dutch uh, political system is proportional representation, and that means that, it, you know, elections don't create winner-takes-all results, uh, which go either one way or another. Uh, parties have different... Um, numbers of seats in Parliament and then have to club together to form a coalition to rule. Uh, given that uh, Heer Filders um, of the Freedom Party had included promises in his election um, programme that were unconstitutional, that would have gone against the constitutional guarantees of religious freedom in the Dutch constitution, and also um, that he had um, been so alienating in his campaign to other political parties he essentially ruled himself out from ever going into power because none of the other parties wanted to rule with him and he would absolutely rely on them to be able to get a majority in uh, in parliament even if he were to finish first so he was uh, kind of he was the main story of the campaign internationally but strangely enough in the netherlands he really wasn't the leading character he barely campaigned he was hidden away you know he lives under 24 hour uh, security and he uh, he his his campaign was absolutely bare bones. Um, it's probably for a number of reasons, um, for practical reasons more than anything else. I mean, his party is uh, uh, very low on funds. Um, it's a strange kind of party. It only technically has one member. 
and that scared Childers himself. And it's set up like that because it gives him complete control. He can expel whoever he wants and completely decide his policies himself. But that also means that they don't have the same level of funds as other Dutch parties because once you have uh, a large number of members in your party, you actually get uh, funding from the state. So they've forgotten that. And, the, uh, and Wilders doesn't have much of a campaign pot. He mostly relies on social media um, and, uh, you know, saying things that are so controversial um, and so kind of um, catchy, I suppose, that he makes headlines. And that's been his, uh, his, uh, his strategy for, for years. Uh, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that this isn't a new phenomenon for the Netherlands. Geert Wilders was one of the longest serving parliamentarians uh, in the Dutch parliament. He was first elected in 1998, and you know his Freedom Party has been going for 10 years, like o- over 10 years in fact. Um, so it's it's not. Um, it's I think it's a it's a different sort of phenomenon to the Brexit tr- vote and and Trump in the U.S. And it's important to draw that distinction. Uh, what we saw with the results um, is that it was it was very mixed. So the the leading party, the one that came out with the most number of states uh, of uh, seats, sorry is the party of Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Um, but having said that, they dropped their number of seats in Parliament based on the last election. And also, um, they, uh, in historical terms, you know, they only have 33 seats this time, which is really, really low. You know, in the, in the last time around, the biggest party had 41, and, and going back further, parties would have traditionally, you know, gained even more than that. So it, it shows a very fragmented electorate. And the results were, were showed a lot of polarization. So on the one hand, Ruta, um, Ruta did okay, you know, and he did that partly by, uh, you know, adopting the sort of tough on immigration rhetoric of Kirsch Wilders. Um, Wilders himself, although he didn't finish first, he did increase his seats. Um, so that, you know, that shows momentum on that side. But on the other side, uh, parties that campaigned on a really proudly pro-EU and pro-multiculturalism campaign, like D66 and Green Left, uh, they made striking gains. So there's certainly um, um, a sense that the election of Trump, for example, galvanized people in the Netherlands and Brexit as well to say, no, we don't want that. We are pro-EU. We want something else. And it kind of got the opposition going. Yeah, and then there's probably one person who's probably looking at this, uh, rubbing their hands together, which is uh, next door, which is Angela Merkel now going into an election herself with, with much of the same... Uh, rhetoric and much of the same uh, worries and issues on the table. Yeah, I think it would definitely be taking it too far to say that this election was a defeat for populism. Um, you know, Ruta, in his victory speech, um, he talked about uh, they had defeated the wrong kind of populism. So his party now talks about the right kind of populism and the wrong kind of populism. And from talking to members of it, they, they define the right kind of populism as parties who were able to take the worries and anxieties of voters and turn them into solutions. So listen to the things that people are worried about, but actually do something about them, rather than kind of fanning division and, and campaigning without a concrete plan, which is how they, they characterize the Heardfielder's campaign. Uh, but I think that is a good illustration of the way in which um, the, the issues, the pet issues of Heardfielder's have been adopted by the mainstream, and Builders has been successful in in driving the centre ground of Dutch politics to the right. Um, and, uh, you know, he's going to likely continue for a good few years in politics and probably just as be, be just as success- successful as he was before in, uh, you know, in, in, 
dominating from the opposition and forcing the other parties to uh, to to adopt his agenda and to address the issues that are his big, uh, you know, his his big obsessions: immigration and, and Islam. I suppose there's there's more than one way to win, um, and he seems to be eking out some sort of victory in that sense. Yes, certainly, and it's not clear that he ever really did want to be prime minister, you know. And that was Naomi O'Leary. And if you'd like to see more of her work on both Northern Ireland and the Dutch elections, I'll provide the links in the description. As always, if you've anything to say about the show, please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter or at cquinn at csis.org. That's it for me. Thanks for listening.